This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Yes, let's start again with the prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and kindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy Spirit, and they shall be created. Let us pray. O God, who taught the hearts of the faithful through the light of the Holy Spirit, grant us in the same spirit to be truly wise and ever rejoice in his consolation, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Our Lady Seat of Wisdom, St. Dominic, St. Thomas Aquinas, St. Philip Neri, Pray in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So yesterday, uh, Dr. George Corbett spoke uh, about the, the way of beauty, with reference especially to... Dante, via pulcritudinis, and in fact, um, all the recent popes have particularly promoted this idea of the via pulcritudinis as a way to God. Um, certainly, uh, John Paul II, Benedict XVI, but also uh, Pope Francis. In um, December 2016, Pope Francis hailed artists as custodians of beauty, a term first used by Pope Paul VI and by then by all his successors. He gave an address to a public session of the Pontifical Academies, which rather strangely is not available in English on the Vatican website, several other languages, but not English. And um, in this address, he said, thus emerges the important and necessary task of artists, particularly those who are believers, and to allow themselves to be enlightened by the beauty of the gospel of Christ, to create works of art that bring precisely through the language of beauty, a sign, a spark of hope and confidence where people seem to surrender to indifference and ugliness. Architects and painters, sculptors and musicians, filmmakers and writers, photographers and poets, artists of every discipline are called to make beauty shine, especially where darkness or grayness dominates daily life. They are custodians of beauty, heralds and witnesses of hope for humanity, as my predecessors have repeatedly said. I therefore invite them to care for beauty, and beauty will heal so many wounds that mark the hearts of souls of the men and women of our day. So Pope Francis really continues that great proclamation of uh, recent popes, calling artists custodians of beauty and emphasizing the importance of beauty, well, in the end, as a revelation of the glory of God in our contemporary world. So his words relate to the philosophical and theological understanding of beauty on which we reflected yesterday. St. Bonaventure being one of the first theologians to number beauty among the so-called transcendentals. Beauty is a property of being itself, convertible with truth and goodness. So art, therefore, as the expression of beauty, can illuminate the grayness of daily life, as Pope Francis puts it. I find this expression particularly fitting since it seems to capture so much of the globalized world we live in. Not so much darkness that exists as well, but grayness always the same, despite the constant talk on diversity. The French anthropologist Marc Auger has coined uh, the word non-places, non-lieux. So we move between non-places. I mean, this is not a non-place. It's a very distinct uh, place which has a great character, history, um, 
in which it, it is embedded, but so many places uh, from which we move, you know, uh, from airports and shopping malls, um, the shops that are always the same wherever you go in the world. I mean, there's a sort of a leveling, a, um, a, a sort of grayness in which, uh, according to uh, Pope Francis, art can actually let the light of beauty shine and so also heal uh, the wounds of humanity, a great calling. He uh, lights, uh, he delineates here for artists in general and in particular for what well, Christian artists, artists formed by the gospel. Sacred art, of course, has a particular function here, um, art related to uh, divine worship. I'll say a few more words about that later. Now, so far, so well, uh, but we are facing the difficulty that modernity has contested precisely the transcendent dimension of beauty as being convertible with truth and goodness uh, and being capable of revealing being uh, to us. Uh, I'm very grateful for uh, the invitation to speak here uh, at this retreat for the Thomistic Institute. I'm myself, I'm not uh, a Thomist by formation, I have a great uh, veneration for the works of the angelic doctor, but my own formation comes from the church fathers, from the protistic tradition, and recent years I've been mainly interested really in, in liturgical uh, questions. I have great admiration for this um, intellectual and spiritual edifice whenever I approach it as a, well, a historical uh, a theologian. Um, and I find, for instance, that uh, St. Thomas's um, theology of grace is really um, the high point of the reflection on that topic, I don't think anything before or afterwards can quite reach the heights of his um, uh, theological mind there. But um, in general, sort of, uh, philosophy and also uh, theology really has not uh, been able in recent decades to connect successfully really with that great uh, theological vision. In particular, uh, the category of beauty has been, well, emancipated um, within inverted commas. It has been detached from the order of being and in a radical turn to subjectivity has been reduced to an aesthetic experience or indeed a matter of feeling. So there, this has been part of an intellectual uh, revolution, the consequences of which are not limited, of course, to the realms of sacred art or art in general. And, Swiss theologian Hans Urs von Balthasar, uh, Dr. Corbett mentioned especially yesterday, ha has seen this very clearly, has perceived this very clearly, and hence his great um, theological uh, project begins with what he calls the theological aesthetics, so recalling the idea that the Catholic tradition has taken up from classical Greek thought, especially from Plato, that truth and goodness attract us, draw us, because they are beautiful. So what is good, in other words, what ought to be done is not just a matter of deliberation and choice, but also becomes self-evident and attracts us, draws us. And Balthasar notes that when beauty is disconnected from this intrinsic link with truth and goodness, when it becomes totally autonomous, then the good loses its force of attraction. It becomes simply a matter of choice, one possibility among others. Balthasar writes in a, in a prophetic way, I think, 
Uh, in a world without beauty, even if people cannot dispense with the word and constantly have it on the tip of their tongues in order to abuse it, in a world which is perhaps not wholly without beauty, but which can no longer see it or reckon with it, in such a world, the good also loses its attractiveness, the self-evidence of why it must be carried out. Man stands before the good and asks why it must be done and not rather its alternative evil. For this too is a possibility and even the more exciting one, why not investigate Satan's depths? A quotation from his work, The Glory of the Lord, first volume. We're not concerned here with the moral result of this intellectual revolution, which is all too evident, but rather with its effect on art, in particular sacred art. One result of this emancipation, or perhaps rather isolation of beauty from being truth and goodness, has been a phenomenon described by the Italian philosopher Remo Bodei as the apotheosis of the ugly. By this, he means an aesthetic theory and practice that rejects anything that appears to be beautiful as deception. And it holds that only the representation of what is crude and vulgar and low is really capable of expressing truth. Now, no doubt in the great classical tradition of art, the ugly is present as well, perhaps as a contrast, as a backdrop to the beautiful. Think of images of the Last Judgment, where the devil and his angels are painted often in the most grotesque and monstrous ways to highlight the contrast with the beauty of heaven. But that is not meant here. What, what Remo Baudet means is really something goes much further. Beauty itself is suspected, suspected as being false, really, um, deceiving us. And the consequence is that beauty is no longer sought. Now, such an analysis of the state of the arts in the modern world is shared by a number of critics of renown. Uh, for example, there's a French art historian and essayist, Jean Clair, it's a pseudonym actually, he's a member of the Académie Française, so very much part of the uh, French um, establishment. And um, he made an outstanding contribution to an initiative that was launched in the, uh, promoted in the uh, pontificate of Benedict XVI, the Court of the Gentiles, that evokes the Temple of Jerusalem, you know, so the Holy of Holies, uh, the court where only courtyard where only the uh, where only Jews, Jewish men actually could um, enter, and then there was a courtyard of the gen for the Gentiles who were at some distance from the sanctuary, were not allowed to approach too closely, but still re related to it. They were still in the temple precincts. They were somehow searching. So the idea is that this courtyard of the Gentiles would be a um, meeting place to relaunch also the dialogue of and engagement of the church with the arts. So there was a, uh, an event uh, in, as part of this larger initiative in Paris in uh, 2011 at which Jean Claire published a very remarkable analysis of the state of the arts in the contemporary world, especially with regard to the sacred, and that's what uh, I'm largely interested in. And Jean Claire does not spare his criticism for certain forms of artistic expression that have been admitted into 
churches. I'm sure you know such examples. You can also uh, search for them on, on, on the internet. Um, fortunately, not so many, I think, uh, in Britain largely because the Catholic Church doesn't really have the money to um, uh, engage in all this. But uh, mm-hmm. I'm afraid to say if you, if you go to Italy, Austria, parts of Germany, you can easily see uh, uh, the problem. Um, but it's a drastic manifestation of, of a wider problem, of a bigger question, really. And uh, Claire does not hide his perplexity about this phenomenon. And he concludes, God without beauty is more incomprehensible than beauty without God. So God without beauty is more incomprehensible than beauty without God. And at the heart of this problem, there is a crisis of culture, at least in the West, a culture that has rejected really the transcendent understanding of beauty. Dr. Corbett mentioned um, Immanuel Kant uh, already, who was very um, influential in this uh, movement of emancipation of uh, beauty from being, as the kind of uh, apogee of the Enlightenment, uh, of Enlightenment <laughs> philosophy. The Romantic movement also made its contribution. It's not really our friend here, I'm afraid, although uh, the Romantics did try to retrieve an an, an older tradition, reconnect, some Romantics reconnect to uh, the Christian Middle Ages, but in the end they um, were rooted also in in this subjectivism, which makes it extremely difficult, if not impossible, to restate these metaphysical foundations of beauty. And when we move in the 20th century, 20th century, really the very idea of fine arts, les beaux-arts, die schönen Künste, that is ultimately grounded in a transcendent vision of beauty, has not so much been lost as perhaps rather uh, consciously rejected. There's a fine book, or what I consider a fine book, by the late uh, Roger Scruton on, on beauty, which seems to me a good example of uh, the aporia we find ourselves um, faced with. Scruton was acutely aware of the need to recover metaphysical foundations of beauty that uh, say have been eroded or rather rejected ever since the 18th century, when aesthetics became a separate philosophical discipline. But in the end, he cannot do so and must limit himself to the judgment of taste. Now, an education of aesthetic taste would go some way, yes, but in the end, you cannot account for taste, de gustibus non est disputandum. So taste alone cannot provide the foundations that would be stable enough to rebuild the metaphysical grounding of the arts today, especially since we have entered what the uh, Polish sociologist Sigmund Baumann calls liquid modernity liquid modernity, modernity where everything becomes sort of uh, fluid and certainly um, it's also known as uh, post-modernity, any grand narratives um, are distrusted and metaphysics, realm of theology, uh, what's uh, the cause of ontotheology, very sort of turn, Heideggerian turn, which is still sort of playing out in many areas of theology, also uh, have really sown a lot of distrust in any of these grand attempts to um, 
rebuild the sort of met metaphysical edifice. I'm not competent to offer a philosophical response to all this, uh, but instead I'd like to approach it from a theological perspective. Fyodor Dostoevsky, great Russian novelist, in an often quoted passage of his novel, The Idiot of 1869, puts into the mouth of his hero, Prince Mishkin, who is in many ways really uh, Christ-like, the famous words, I believe the world will be saved by beauty. Of course, not any beauty is meant here, but the redemptive beauty of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ crucified and glorified, as I've tried to uh, uh, elaborate on um, yesterday. This redemptive beauty shines forth in the splendor of the saints, but it's also reflected in the works of art that the faith has generated. I'd like to return again to that passage from the uh, Catechism, which I quoted yesterday. The Catechism speaks about sacred art, especially as glorifying the mystery of God made visible on, in Christ, leading us to the love of God. Now, what do we really mean by sacred in the Christian sense? Of course, it is not to be understood in a generic or vague sense, but it means very concretely the solemn worship of God, the sacred liturgy. And I believe the sacred liturgy can offer us such an encounter with God, who is beauty itself. And this can lift us to, indeed, the, the uh, reality um, of God in which we already share in this life sacramentally by baptism and, of course, the um, Holy Eucharist. So any renewal, certainly, of sacred art, sacred architecture, sacred music, comes from the sacred liturgy. Now, what is the liturgy at its heart? I mean, it's, uh, concepts, definitions, um, but what is perhaps the uh, prof most profound description of what the liturgy is? Well, I think it is the one offered uh, in, in Sacrosanctum Concilium, find the text on the handout, where uh, the conciliar document elaborates on the liturgy as an exercise of the priestly office, priestly function, munus, a word not easily to easy to translate, the priestly munus of Jesus Christ. And then the constitution continues, in the liturgy, the sanctification of man is signified by signs perceptible to the senses and is effected in a way which corresponds with each of these signs. In the liturgy, the whole public worship is performed by the mystical body of Jesus Christ, that is, by the head and his members. Here, really, um, Sacrosanctum Concilium restates a fundamental principle of Catholic worship, formulated already by St. Thomas Aquinas, proclaimed in a very similar way by Pope Pius XII in his encyclical Mediato Dei, and then again resumed in the Catechism. So the liturgy is seen as the exercise of the priesthood of Christ, more precisely, the priesthood of the whole Christ, Christus Tortus, beautiful idea which St. Augustine especially developed in his um, reading of the Psalms, Christ the head and the members of the mystical body, which is the church. 
So the whole Christ, Christ our head, but we as the members of the mystical body being united with our head and acting with him. Of course, those who participate in this exercise of Christ's priesthood are, well, the ordained, pray, ordained priest who acts in the person of Christ the head by virtue of his priestly ordination and the baptized faithful as members of the mystical body. So it's useful to recall here that the ordained priest shares in the priesthood of Christ by virtue of his sacramental character in a special way, but does not act in an isolated way. In the offering of Mass, the priest acts together with the mystical body, in the mystical body, which is the communion of the baptized, even if he would say uh, Mass on his own without the participation of any um, of the faithful. So by vir virtue of the baptismal priesthood, the faithful join in the offering of the holy sacrifice, and they are called to make their whole lives an offering pleasing to God. Of course, all that would be a topic for another retreat, but I believe that here we really get to the most profound um, nature of what is happening in the liturgy. And it is precisely at this point that um, Sacrosanctum Concilium introduces the notion of the sacredness of the liturgy when it says, from this it follows that every liturgical celebration, because it is an action of Christ, the priest and of his body, which is the church, is a sacred action surpassing all others. No other action of the church can equal its efficacy by the same title and to the same degree. So a sacred action, and sacredness then is always derived from the liturgy, which is the action of Christ in his mystical body. Again, corresponding with the principle uh, formulated by St. Thomas that we call a thing sacred, sacrum, because of its relation to divine worship, at cultum divinum, cultus divinus, divine worship, makes something sacred. In fact, anthropologists also argue that it is a ritual that has an active role in framing the sacred and setting it apart from uh, the ordinary and sort of showing it to us, communicating it to us, as sacred. Because much more so than um, personal and interior prayer, the liturgy is an external action. It, ha it has concrete forms of expression. It involves matter, obviously. It involves our senses. And precisely because it involves our senses, of course, seeing, hearing, so smelling, touching, it is in need of a proper place, a proper time, and proper objects that are specifically dedicated to it so that it can truly be celebrated as a sacred action. And it is from that relation to the sacred action that we then can speak of sacred space, of the church, building sacred time we set apart for the liturgy and sacred objects. And this is where um, art and architecture Come in, come, in, come in, because the first of material reality um, we have is well, the church building, the space in which uh, worship is offered, the furnishings that are used for it, the art, the imagery, the music, um, and so on. Now, 
we know all very well that uh, the sacraments in their essence, at the you know, form and uh, matter, or the, the sacramental sign, are extremely simple. In order to be baptized, you know, in case of an emergency, you only need to pour water over a candidate's head and pronounce the words of, I baptize you in the Father, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. But of course, the, uh, the church has built around these very simple signs, prayers, blessings, or other um, elements accessible to the senses, which are really meant for us to give us a better idea of what is happening in the sacraments, to give us an idea of that invisible grace which is communicated in them. Again, St. Thomas speaks of a solemnity, solemnitas, that serves to awaken devotion and reverence in those who receive it, especially in the, in the uh, Most Holy Eucharist. The uh, German uh, Thomist philosopher Josef Pieper speaks here of a sacred language, by which he doesn't just mean uh, linguistic forms, but signs, gestures that are used in public worship. Uh, and, and so a quasi-language that also communicates uh, to us the, the mystery that is actually made present to us in uh, the sacred liturgy. So uh, the sacrality of the liturgy can also be understood as an expression of its sacramentality. So the great reality that is really hidden in the sacramental sign, because it's in the same times of uh, uh, communicated, but also hidden really in its uh, reality. Um, the, the, this sacramental sign is, we, we, uh, we can experience through the material settings that the liturgy offers to us to make us give us a better understanding of it. The question can also be approached from an angle which um, Joseph Ratzinger in his book, The Spirit of the Liturgy, uh, proposed some years ago. See, there is a whole school of uh, theology, also Catholic theology, that would argue that for Christians, really, there is no such thing as sacred time or sacred space. Essentially, with the incarnation, Christ has sanctified the whole creation. The barriers that um, would, would have existed before were uh, really uh, removed. The curtain in the temple was torn you know, at the death of Christ. This is symbolically uh, meaning that these boundaries between sacred and profane no longer um, exist. I mean, Karana pursued this thought, for, for instance. Um, and of course, there, there is some truth to it, uh, of course. Uh, in, in my older days, I actually, I, 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 um, I, get, I become much more favorable to Karl Rahner's thought, actually. I, I think I understand much better what he, what he wanted to do, at least uh, in his earlier, earlier years. Um, so there is some truth to it. There is actually a transition from uh, the sacrifice of the temple, which was all limited to one space, you know, the one uh, sanctuary of Israel, to a worship that is truly you know, universal in spirit on, and in truth. But it doesn't mean that um, these um, categories of, of the sacred and the, say, ordinary, the quotidian, are uh, simply removed because we haven't yet completely passed over to the new Jerusalem, great vision of the book of Revelation, 
the heavenly city, uh, the city of the redeemed, where God himself and the Lamb are its temple, the temple of that heavenly city, where you don't have a need of a specific building because God himself is the temple. Now, this reality has begun in our world, has entered our world, but hasn't been um, consummated uh, yet. So we're in a time sort of in between uh, already and not yet. And in this period in between, the empirical conditions of, of our life in this world are still in force. Uh, so um, in other words, we, we live in, in, uh, in a state which some church fathers described as an image between shadow and reality. So we have emerged out of the shadow, but haven't quite yet um, passed over to the full um, reality. And because the whole world is meant to be transformed into the worship of God, but we are still quite far away from that. And uh, that will be fully realized only at the end of time when Christ will come again. So our existence in this world is still structured by these categories of time and space. And so are our prayer and divine worship. So we still need these uh, conditions to, to help us raise our hearts and minds uh, to God. In uh, the last time uh, when Pope Benedict celebrated Corpus Christi as Pope in Rome, he preached quite a remarkable uh, homily uh, in which he said, God sent his son into the world not to abolish, but to give fulfillment also to the sacred. At the height of this mission, at the Last Supper, Jesus instituted the sacrament of his body and his blood, the memorial of his paschal sacrifice. By so doing, he replaced the ancient sacrifices with himself, but he did so in a rite which he commanded the apostles to perpetuate as a supreme sign of the true sacred, which is he himself. So it's true, yes, Christ brought to completion, to fulfillment, all those sacrifices of, um, of the temple, the, uh, the temple ritual, temple priesthood, but he didn't simply abolish it, but replaced it with himself and gave us, well, a right to perpetuate until he would come again in glory. And this is related especially, of course, to Corpus Christi, including also the procession, an important part of um, um, Catholic life. Pope Benedictine noted also the educational function of the sacred, the divine pedagogy uh, in this, and warned that its disappearance inevitably impoverishes culture, and especially the formation of the new generations. If we impoverish our liturgy, if we impoverish our expression of the sacred, we also impoverish culture in general and will make it much more difficult for new generations to be formed in the faith. And of course, making these mysteries that are celebrated in the sacred liturgy perceptible to our senses is the mission of sacred architecture and sacred art. So first I'd like to say something about sacred architecture. And i like to take as my guide um, St. John Henry Newman, I mean, his amazing corpus of writings. He also has some very worthwhile reflections on what church building is. As one of the leaders of the Oxford movement, which tended to reclaim the Catholic heritage of the Church of England, by building on the early fathers of the church and also the Anglican divines of the 17th um, century. 
Newman also sought to restore some elements of Catholic tradition in liturgy and above all in, in, in church architecture. Newman actually built a number of churches, the first one in, in Littlemore near Oxford, and developed quite uh, clear ideas of um, what that means to build a church. He has a sermon uh, from November 1836 called The Gospel Palaces, where he comments on Jesus's encounter with the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well, uh, John 4. Jesus declares the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for such the Father seeks to worship him. And this is one of these classic passages that is often used um, to argue for a kind of um, so secularization um, of so the Christian faith in its relation with the world, because, you know, we worship in spirit and in truth. Well, um, it's true that Christian worship is um, not confined to a single sa sanctuary. It is universal. It is not tied to one place. It's not tied to the Temple of Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim, the place of worship for the Samaritans, of course, and this is a dialogue with a woman from Samaria. But Newman observes that this does not mean that under the gospel there should be no rites and ceremonies, no public services, no sacred buildings. So Christ did not say to the Samaritan woman that there should be no places and buildings for worship under the new covenant, but that there should indeed be many such houses. And Newman writes, the glory of the gospel is not the abolition of rites, but their dissemination, not their absence, but their living and efficacious presence through the grace of Christ. Accordingly, such, such passages as the texts, those spoken in the times of the law, are fulfilled even at this day, and as we trust among ourselves. The Jewish temple indeed has come to naught, but he has a meaning still, and a noble one, as signifying the Christian institution of churches. Now, the building of these churches is clearly a work of faith, and Newman also uh, comments on it being a work that is passed on from generation to generation, that is not simply finished with one architectural project of limited time scale. So he comments, we his members who have but a portion of his fullness execute but a part of his purpose. One lays the foundation and another builds thereupon. One levels the mountain and another brings forth the headstone with shoutings quote from Zechariah, thus were our churches raised. One age would build a chancel and another a nave, and a third would add a chapel, and a fourth a shrine, and a fifth a spire. By little and little the work of grace went forward. So the building of a church is a work that proceeds slowly. Of course, that's something we can't do very well um, today, doing something slowly. Everything is... Um, there's a timeline for everything, and that, of course, includes also our building of churches. Uh, they're usually constructed um, very quickly. Of course, uh, um, something similar happened, perhaps, you know, when Christianity was recognized by um, the Emperor Constantine in the fourth century. They also actually constructed these churches in a rather short space of time. But more historically, more church building is a slow process. And it's also a process that really is sort of, um, comes from the heart of, well, 
the Christian community, the local uh, church, the communion of faith. As Newman says, one lays the foundation, another builds thereupon, another one constructs another chapel, a shrine, a spire. So it is really linked to um, the story of a church in a particular place. And as such, it is a spiritual work. It's a monument also to the saints who have given witness to God through their lives. And the visible um, beauty of the building, its decoration, its art, points to a spiritual beauty that, beauty that is rooted in transcendence. Newman writes, the simplicity, grandeur, solidity, elevation, grace, and exuberance of ornament of a church do but bring to remembrance the patience and purity, the courage, meekness, and great charity, the heavenly affections. So, in a way, Newman offers us a profound spirituality of church building. May I ask then, how do we actualize this work when we should indeed have the opportunity to build a church, to renovate, renovate a church, restore a church, or um, do, in, do any work that is related to it? I'm sure you're familiar with church buildings that hardly point to such transcendent beauty, especially uh, modernist constructions of the 20th century. There is the intuition you often hear that some churches just don't look like a church. And I believe there's something true in this intuition, uh, something that needs to be sort of fleshed out, but there is something um, in this intuition that is correct. And this is not based on a preference of style. I mean, uh, Pugin was mentioned uh, earlier here. Pugin got into a phenomenal row with the oratorians uh, of the mid 19th century, both Birmingham and, Birmingham and London, so Newman and Faber, uh, because he they simply detested uh, their way of promoting sort of Renaissance, early Baroque architecture, um, and thought that only Gothic was the style of church building. That was part of the spirit of the age at the same time, but it would be mistaken. And that's, again, something Newman saw very clearly to promote this as the only style of church architecture. So it is not a question of style, not a question of preference. You may prefer Romanesque, Gothic, Baroque, arts and crafts. I mean, uh, I'd like to try and propose some principles or categories of church architecture that would be applicable to all uh, these, sort of, at least historical styles in some uh, contemporary buildings as well. These principles are by no means meant to be exhaustive or definitive, uh, but rather meant as suggestions for the purpose of discussion. So my first principle would be, would be verticality. A church needs to have a clearly expressed vertical dimension that goes beyond the functional dimensions of the building. Historical churches are usually marked by their height, and this is not an accident. Whenever Christians could, of course, can't always, but whenever they can, there's a vertical slant in the church building that communicates a sense of God's transcendence and leads the worshiper to, in the words of the uh, letter to the Colossians, to seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. 
some years ago, went uh, went to Hong Kong and went um, to a, a Catholic parish um, on on the island, um, and uh, it was in big block of uh, you know flats and, uh, and was hardly anything from the outside uh, that would identify it as a church except I think I think in an image of Our Lady on, on the facade which indicated the presence of the Catholic parish there so I thought um, uh, didn't quite know what to expect but once you went actually into the space uh, which was part of this enormous apartment block it was actually uh, a very impressive sp church space, interior space, very high, sort of vertical, very clearly also oriented towards the, uh, uh, the altar and, and, and worked very well. So obviously you can't do everything um, um, in every place, but um, you can still, even under perhaps some rather adverse uh, conditions, um, express the, 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 this principle. The second principle then, orientation, already mentioned it, bit of my, perhaps my pet subject, but uh, I do think a church should have a clear sense of directionality. When the Constantinian turn in the early fourth century permitted the development of monumental church ar architecture, uh, it had its root alre roots already in the pre-Constantinian time, wasn't such a uh, uh, moment of discontinuity as sometimes um, uh, indicated, but still, because the, the material conditions were then there to develop church building everywhere in the Roman Empire. Now, the type of building that was chosen was the basilica, so the court hall, the market hall, a building that um, had a long rectangular nave ending in a semicircular apse, which was considered singularly suitable for the essential demands of Christian worship and became normative in the Western tradition. was then sort of... Uh, decorated and, and, and uh, filled in many different ways in different parts of the world, but the basic structure um, remained essentially. So the ideal of a Christian church is not a circular building with our altar and all the other liturgical furnishings in the center. Buildings of this type are really quite rare before the second half of the 20th century, and such buildings are usually linked uh, with a specific liturgical purpose. It could be a memoria, a memorial building over a venerated tomb, tomb of a saint. It could be a baptistry, obviously, um, but not uh, a church really regularly used for um, liturgical worship. It is that directionality of the basilica layout that expresses the church as the mystical body of Christ, the worshiping communities, actions of praying and offering uh, to the Lord. And when this sense of directionality or, or orientation is then combined with the principle of verticality, it becomes clear that this movement reaches beyond the visible altar towards eschatological fulfillment, because the Mass is the anticipation of future glory, is the pledge of future glory in the presence of the living God. Even in the uh, Byzantine tradition, Eastern Christian tradition, which came to favor sort of a central um, central structure for its typical, you know, typical Orthodox church, still has this sense of directionality because the the the, um, the sanctuary behind the iconostasis is also facing facing east, and the particular iconography um, in the domes uh, of the sanctuary also points towards that 
eschatological fulfillment. My third principle would be liminality or the need for thresholds. Work of anthropologists, especially Victor Turner, a committed Catholic, has brought into relief the importance of such thresholds, Lehman thresholds, so liminality, uh, being in a state of sort of between, uh, betwixt and between, crossing from one state, uh, making the passage from one state to another. We also need that in a church building. There's the entrance to the building, which again should not simply be functional, but um, symbolical and where possible monumental, a facade that marks the church building as set apart, but still communicating with uh, the reality around it. Catechism of the Catholic Church has rather, rather good um, a passage actually on, on the significance of the church entrance. To enter into the house of God, we must cross a threshold which symbolizes passing from the world wounded by sin to the world of the new life to which all men are called. So there's here, there's a limit, a threshold that separates the ground of the church from the street or square where it stands, but at the same time allows passage and communication between the two worlds. Because an outside precinct in the form of an atrium, like early Christian basilicas, or a sagrado, as in the supreme model of uh, Bernini's, well, St. Peter's Square, is a particular felicitous expression of this dynamic. Then, of course, there should be a second uh, important threshold that concerns the sanctuary. Again, the official documents of the church make clear that this should be appropriately marked off from the body of the church, either by being somewhat elevated or by a particular structure and ornamentation. So, again, there should be uh, something clear, visible, sort of evident that here is another sort of level of, um, of sacredness which we are entering because it is, of course, the altar where the sacrifice is offered. Sanctuary that is actually elevated by a few steps also allows better visibility and gives a clearer sense of so the liturgical orientation. The fourth principle I'd like to propose concerns the connection of sacred art and architecture. It's about iconography. And that, I think, leads us also then to uh, sacred art. In, in the spirit of the liturgy, Joseph Ratzinger writes, the complete absence of images is incompatible with faith in the incarnation of God. God has acted in history and entered into our sensible world so that it may become transparent to him. Images of beauty in which the mystery of the invisible God becomes visible is an essential part of Christian worship. Iconoclasm is not a Christian option. Complete absence of images is incompatible with faith in the incarnation of God. It's a very clear uh, statement. I think it's, um, it's a very important uh, statement. Of course, here we, we are in, in a difficulty which also uh, uh, Pope Benedict is very much um, aware of. And that difficulty is rooted in that wider crisis of uh, the fine arts on which I have commented earlier, because we also have a crisis of the sacred image. Now, Benedict identifies a materialist attitude here that um, we show in, in using and manipulating 
images, uh, which is rooted in the, the way in which we, in general, we can manipulate the world and do dominate, indeed, the material world today. We have a sort of domination over the material world by means of technology, which you know, has never been known in the history of humanity. Of course, we also realize the limits of that uh, domination and the, the, the danger in which we um, um, get if we don't somehow put checks on it. But still, I mean, the, the technological possibilities today are just um, unheard of uh, in, in, in human history. But um, this great mastery over matter uh, also leads, according to Benedict, to a blindness to the questions of life that transcend the material realm. A blindness of the spirit, that's how uh, uh, Joseph Ranziger called it in the spirit of the liturgy. So um, we are then very much focused on uh, the material realm. And when we come to um, a question of images, that has uh, profound consequences. So we live in a culture of images. They're present everywhere, um, especially also in our mobile devices, video screens. Uh, um, the image seems to be much more powerful than, uh, than the spoken word often. Uh, we manipulate images, we, uh, yeah, and we express ourselves um, uh, with images. We want to project a certain, uh, well, a certain image of ourselves by means of these uh, forms of communication. But often these images remain on the surface. Um, they do not go beyond anything that uh, goes other that goes further than what can be perceived by the sen uh, senses. But for the sacred image, there's a transcendent dimension that needs to be some that somehow needs to be um, included in, in our consideration. So um, how uh, can we sort of learn to see beyond uh, the, the uh, well, uh, the material surface, how can we see the spiritual reality that um, well, sacred art, the sacred image, is meant to communicate? Well, um, the, the iconoclasm is not a Christian option. And so the question is really one of, of um, trying to recover what sacred art is. And it is essentially um, figurative. So it is actually the image, properly speaking, it is the, the human image that uh, has a central place in sacred art. God has, has become visible in Jesus of Nazareth, who is the incarnate son of God. He lived among us um, in a particular place at a particular time. And the image of Jesus of Nazareth through all the hypostatic union of divinity and humanity do, does express, well, the face of God actually fulfills that great desire of the old covenant to, to, to see God. It goes through the Old Testament, especially the Psalms. There's this great idea of the search for the face of the Lord, seeking the face of the Lord, seeing the face of the Lord, which is, of course, impossible uh, under the old covenant. 
who can't you can't see the face of the Lord and and uh, and and remain alive. Even Moses only sees of God passing by, uh, so from from behind, as it were. Um, and um, that um, search is fulfilled is is actually in Jesus of Nazareth, in whom, in a way, then we do see the face of the Lord, uh, of the Lord. and hence. Uh, that has really formed, in a very profound way, Christian icon iconography, Christian <coughs> sacred art. So it is about it is about the image, the image of Christ, um, and of course the saints. Now this again and again stirs terrible controversy. Um, Byzantine iconoclasm, uh, the the the. Calvinist Reformation, especially if Lutherans were not iconoclast, they didn't really smash images unless it was kind of sort of mob revolt. But uh, uh, so you need the English Reformation, which systematically destroyed uh, the human face from uh, from churches and cathedrals. I mean, it's an extraordinary um, thing, really. Which I, although I've been as a teaching that period now for a few years, really can't comprehend at all how uh, this could come about. Um, and of course, the iconoclasm of the 20th century, the second half of the 20th century, when um, images, statues were thrown out of churches, uh, when you get stories, sometimes hear stories that remind one of, again, see the, the Reformation period where the people, families would sort of take a statue, uh, hide it, or just take it to their home, um, keep it as a private object of devotion, and then actually some decades afterwards when the great, uh, greatest iconoclasm had uh, calmed down a bit, would give it back to the church again and would be put into the church. Are these things having happened? I know from the church in Germany where there's something like that happened. So the, the power of iconoclasm is not to be uh, not to be underestimated, and I suppose there are excesses of veneration of images, all of that, but it doesn't doesn't legitimize that great um, destruction. So, so the image, the image of Christ, the image uh, of the saints. This is actually something that is essential and uh, has to be part also of our uh, churches. Now, sometimes um, um, this is called the poor man's Bible. Um, it's argued that um, images in historical churches were there because people weren't able to read. They didn't, didn't, of course, books were luxury goods, so they couldn't actually read the scriptures as we can today. There's incredible arrogance in that, um, in that idea. I also think it's, it's, it's wrong um, because you can only read and understand an image if you already know who's depicted and what story may be depicted, you know, biblical scene, scenes from the life of the saints. So you must already have received some instruction. You must have been told the story already in order to understand what is depicted. You, maybe you've made this experience if you go to a historical church um, and you see some either stained glass or some fresco, whatever it may be, and um, you know, 
course, identify the saints. You identify a, a, a biblical story, you know, Old Testament may already get a bit difficult, even in my case, I have to say. Um, sometimes not so, as my knowledge of the um, Old Testament is not that firm that I can read all these stories. Then when you come to the lives of the saints, you may know perhaps uh, lives of some, may, uh, some saints you like particularly, but especially if you go to a uh, church where you have a local saint depicted, you may not know it all was depicted. So you can only read these images um, if you already have received some knowledge about biblical narratives, biblical saints, lives of later saints. So not, they're not simply a, a, a poor man's Bible, but they require actual knowledge, which we often today don't have. So I don't think this was simply uh, for, for um, an education. I think what, what the main point of it is the presence of these um, saints as really participating in the, the act of worship, which, which is happening there. So you, we do celebrate mass in the communion of the angels and the saints. We do join the heavenly worship and that is made perceptible through the imagery of the church. Of course, in the Eastern Christian tradition, you have a very developed iconography with very strict canonical rules, what you're meant to put where. Uh, we don't have that in the same way in the Western tradition, but we also had often programs of iconography that uh, were followed. For example, the last judgment on, on the, in, in the Western, um, in, um, when you leave the church, on, 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 um, uh, so in the inside in, in, uh, um, of the, um, of the facade. So um, that, I think, is one important consideration. Another one, and I think that must be my last one, I could go on about this for a while, but I think that must be my last one for now, is um, that while Christian sacred art is essentially figurative, it, is, it can never be reduced to, to naturalism. The representation of the sacred demands some element of abstraction that will allow it to, to communicate the reality of the supernatural. In fact, uh, the, the art priest, art historian, Timothy Verdon, uh, wrote an essay for some years ago, which I found quite to the point here, where um, he uh, speaks of the abs uh, abstraction in, in Fra Angelico's paintings. And I think there's something to that. I mean, in Byzantine iconography, that sort of hieratic aspect is very clear, but also the great masters of the Western tradition, especially as we are moving towards naturalism, I mean, um, Giotto, Fra Angelico, there's all, there is an all element of abstraction there. It's not simply a naturalistic depiction. This is also important for today because you have actually quite a revival of um, figurative art today, sort of outside sort of the main um, sort of schools of, of, of artistic formation. In Florence, there's sort of private schools that, that promote that. Of course, it's still very popular in portrait painting and so So you have quite a sophisticated um, um, school of figurative painting today. But there's often a problem if those artists then depict uh, saints and sacred topics, it can be a bit, sometimes if it's overly naturalistic, uh, I think there's something lacking it in it. And hence, uh, Timothy Burton speaks of kind of element of abstraction, which should, makes, makes an, uh, which facilitates the, the sort of, uh, intuition of the sacrum in representation, but intuition of a transcendent reality. 
Um, but coming, going back finally to, to uh, the liturgy, I think in all of this, the heart um, of the matter still remains uh, the, the sacred liturgy, the divine worship that is offered in this, these buildings. Without it, um, everything else really uh, loses its proper, proper context, like you know, um, uh, going to a museum and um, looking at um, paintings that were an altarpiece. I mean, it's wonderful to see these pieces, obviously, and glad that they have survived. But a lot of these paintings were not uh, were actually meant to be for churches. Mass was meant to be celebrated in front of them. Now, um, Marcel Proust, the French literary art author, wrote an essay at the time when, um, at the Dreyfus Affair in, Paris, in, in France, when uh, the separation of church and state threatened the religious use of the French cathedrals. And uh, Proust argued that the aesthetic impression of these cathedrals is inseparable from the liturgical rites that are actually carried out in them. Uh, he even says well, it would even better to devastate uh, or demolish its church rather than to deconsecrate it. It wouldn't go quite that far, but there's an insight here that um, it is certainly, it is, it is the worship, it is the liturgy that is also the heart of that artistic and, and architectural um, sort of endeavor. So um, in conclusion then, I believe when the church's liturgical tradition then is experienced in its authentic beauty, it will also lead to a new appreciation of sacred art and architecture also to a new inspiration and uh, renewal of it. Well, thank you very much. I need to conclude here. So I think we have time for a few uh, few questions. We're running a bit late. Yes, uh, Thank Consuelo. you very much for your talk, Robert. Um, I've got a question. Do you think that, so statues So the question um, is, the, these representations of sacred art or Christ, saints, do they somehow represent these heavenly realities to us, come, somehow bring them down to us, or uh, do they just point, uh, point to them? Well, um, yeah, well, I think there is a sense in which they do make these realities present to us, yes, in which the image does make them present. Of course, they are sort of mystical, kind of mystical experience, you say, as Our Lady Smiles uh, on, on St. Therese. Um, but yes, in a way, um, 
I mean, I think there there, there is there there is a presence in the um, image that may well go beyond the simple sign, sort of sign function. Uh, um, yes, um, I think yeah, can, can be. Yeah. And sorry, just to add to that makes it different from like psychic art because if we look at this picture, it's like this lady is not going to like talk to us because she's not. Whereas with the Religious art, it's kind of like a, I guess it kind of extends a relationship with God with, through the art. So I didn't catch the, the uh, I didn't quite catch the last uh, but in it, it makes it totally different from kind of secular art, which can also point us to God in its beauty, but because of religious art is like a participation in the divine, it could like help the believer in that faith. So that's why it's so important to help them. It's just an extension of what I'm Yes, yes. Again, I would say there. Um, again, I think you have to look at obviously the art from um, from the perspective of faith, and you already have to have some sort of intuition of um, um, what is depicted. Uh, I mean, Stations of the Cross uh, are, will help you to recall the Stations of Christ's way of the cross. Uh, but say, if you, if you had no knowledge at all uh, about it, it would take you some time to obviously to figure out what, what, what is happening here. Uh, but it is, I guess, through faith, you get an access to the, uh, also the, the mystery of the life of the Lord that is depicted there. Yeah. I, I don't know who, who, I don't remember who's first. Uh, uh, maybe if you start uh, here. Uh, I was talking with a Russian-American icon mentor two weeks ago over email. Uh, I was doing an interview with him. And he said that in his mind there is no such thing as uh, secular art. All art for him is religious. Do you think that there is something in the translation and transfiguration of the secular world, for example, non-religious art, that is in itself a kind of religious act? And you mentioned abstraction. At what point does the abstract become too abstract and we lose that transfigurative, uh, translatory process? Yeah, so uh, the question was, uh, this Russian-American um, icon painter says, there is no um, secular art. I would, I would not agree. I think there is definitely uh, a secular art. Um, <laughs> There is certainly art that is in no way related to divine worship and is still beautiful in experience, which can lead to an experience of that beauty which we believe leads to God, yes, by all means. But um, I do think still that there is, there is a distinction between a secular and a secular. Not, a, not an, uh, not an um, impenetrable barrier, but uh, still a, a, a distinction. And the element of abstraction, how far uh, does it go? Um, obviously, the, the, um, the human figure, uh, the human face uh, needs to be recognized. Also, the, the narrative elements of, um, say, a story needs, still needs to be recognized, or the uh, identification of a saint, say, by attributes. Uh, but uh, it's... Um, um, so, I mean, the... the but it's, I think the, 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 uh, it's just to say really that um, figurative is not simply identical with mere naturalism. So there can be a um, perfect naturalistic depiction of 
even a sacred scene, a biblical uh, uh, scene, which uh, can be beautiful in itself, and, and uh, uh, but may lack something in in terms of um, say in terms of the sacred. Yeah. Uh, yes, let's just go. Yes, uh, sure. There's a tendency nowadays with this kind of, like you said, naturalism in the religious churches, and also they're making an argument for simplicity, or they'll make the use of that maybe, but they, they always say it's for the sake of simplicity, and then you have this obsession with wooden glass, simply like it's like clear. They, What would you say to them with that argument, but saying, like, well, we don't need this complexity, actually, God is simple, and we return to the garden, and there's an emphasis on having kind of a more like a background behind the altar is like glass and then there's like a garden and they'll mm. see that they have this depiction of the garden and trying to reduce things to simplicity i see that in a lot of Yes, I'm not sure whether you refer to the uh, Dominican chapel at Edinburgh, so I better be careful. <laughs> better be careful of what I'm saying. I've never seen it, but I've, I've heard it described. Um, and um, I mean, there, there, I mean, there, there is a place for simplicity, and uh, there, are, uh, there are forms of art and architecture that are very simple and exquisitely beautiful. Um, Cistercian architecture was consciously. Um, uh, simple in its form, rejection of the Cluniac excesses, uh, and uh, and is can be exquisitely, exquisitely beautiful and and uplifting. So I think there's also a place for uh, there is a place for simplicity as well. Um, then how you uh, how you execute it, how you uh, I mean, because there are <coughs> lot of people, uh, a lot of different uh, views and tastes come in. But uh, just perhaps in general, I think there's. But I think there are certain um, um, there are certain lines to be drawn. Uh, so simplicity, yes, not ex not at the complete exclusion of images, for instance. Uh, uh, I think yes, that's just well, Joseph, is it? So um, you mentioned the book Beauty by Roger Scruton, and in the book he compares. It kind of made a parallel between um, beauty against um, beauty against ugliness and sacredness against um, what is profane. Um, so one, I noticed that one particular phenomenon we see nowadays in the realm of beauty is this uh, sense of subjectivism. That is, uh, you know, uh, people say. Beauties and eyes of beholden. So I wonder whether you think there is a similar subjectivism of secretness creeping in, as one may say that secretness is in the heart of the worshiper, mm. where there is no objective secretness. And if there is such a subjectivism of secretness, uh, to what extent is this harmful for our spiritual life? Yes, yeah, so, so um, the subjectivism of beauty uh, in, the, in the eye of the beholder, is there a similar subjectivism of, of sacredness? So it's in the heart of the worship. It's a good question. I, I mean, actually, I'm um, trying to move from, from beauty to uh, the sacred because I thought we were actually on firmer ground there precisely because beauty uh, can is considered such a subjective um, uh, judgment or feeling. Um, and so, um, you know, there are 
people, I respect their uh, judgment, who find uh, Renzo Piano's church in, 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 um, in, in San Giovanni Rotondo, Padre Pio, the Padre Pio church, beautiful. I don't, but uh, <laughs> I respect, you know, or, or um, Los Angeles Cathedral, uh, Rafael Moneo. Um, and uh, so I tried, then uh, that's why I'm trying to shift uh, the ground a bit towards the sacred, because uh, I, was, uh, I think this does, gives a, does give, a, give us a firmer uh, foundation for it, because the same beauty is so, so um, uh, subjective. But of course, you can say, yes, uh, is it in the, in the heart of the worshiper? Well, I suppose because it... Um, it is the um, it is always the action of community. Uh, it is not an isolated activity, uh, but always happens. We worship as a community, and that's by the way one of the aspects, one of the reasons why Zoom masses, uh, televised, uh, live streamed masses, can never be the same as you know uh, assisting at mass, participating in, in the place where the mass is offered. Um, I think that I think there can be there can be um, shared uh, criteria for for uh, for what is sacred, and I think there still is. I think the the the, the idea of a threshold, for instance, the idea of a um, um, of, of of verticality. I think I, at least I was hoping that we would be on the, somehow on the firmer ground here. Um, yes. Well, thanks very much for the talk. Um, there were lo lots of really rich uh, moments in it that I could draw from que questions from, but there were two in particular that I sort of wanted to join together. One was, I really appreciated what you said at the beginning about um, the, the sacred being uh, something that participates, like, defined as that of participating in liturgy. Um, so in some sense, it being not content or not a category of thing, but an activity. Um, so that distinction between the sacred and the profane being um, not that there are these things that are profane, these things that are sacred, but that that, as Rana says in the incarnation, is that that division, that particular way of dividing, is completely undermined by the incarnation. And that the division is really about the activity with which we, the way in which we participate in the material world. So, um, this is what I understood you were saying. That in the liturgy, we raise those objects which may be profane, and in doing so, they become sacred. Uh, the, the things that, the, the materiality of the world. Um, and that idea of the sacred as being something, as an activity, I just wanted to relate to what you then identified as those principles of what would make a good architecture for a church. And I was thinking particularly about Pugin, and you mentioned um, uh, Pugin sort of preferring the Gothic. Um, but it seems to me that Pugin is really interested in something similar, which is understanding the material in the context of the liturgical. And so it's not just a kind of taste preference for the Gothic, but it's a recognition of the Gothic uh, is that which enables us to read the material world around us, to understand it, in the context of it, it being able to celebrate God, to worship God. Mm. Um, and that he's, it's not so much as a preference for, mm. you know, pointy arches, but it's like, it's that if we respond to materials in this way, you know, then, um, then we can, then 
the materials will lead us, it's the activity leading us towards God. So I was thinking that with this idea of uh, coming up with principles which would make a good liturgical space or make a good, um, uh, which we, uh, principles which might, under, uh, sort of, which might define sacred art or sacred architecture. Could you say that it's anything which involves itself in that activity of raising material, the material world to God? Yes, I think that uh, that is a good point. If you uh, uh, so, anything that um, helps us uh, to, to yeah, that raises sort of the material material realities we are dealing here, uh, uh, we're dealing with here, to to God and uh, what Putin tried to do. Um, so, so it is really in the in the uh, in the kind of the sacred action in the ritual action that we. Recognize what is sacred I mean, by by uh, by kneeling, for instance, obviously during the Eucharistic prayer, by by genuflecting to the Blessed um, uh, Sacrament. My um, so 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 it's the rit uh, the, yeah it's the ritual action that sort of sets apart these material otherwise sort of ordinary material realities uh, uh, to um, as. As sanctified and, and and belonging belonging to God in the first place. Um, so yes, and Pugin, um, I mean Pugin, of course, built beautiful churches, and and Pugin had a keen sense of the relationship of faith and culture, religion, and culture. I mean, his preference from for the Gothic came from his conviction that this was. Um, Truly, a star that was that was created in a Christian civilization came out of a Christian uh, of commonwealth, sort of Christian Middle Age. A bit of romantic ideas, but but essentially, it was uh, it was correct about that. But uh, what I, and as of uh, being an oratorian, I cannot help. But also, my it's my conviction. But but what I uh, disagree with is that the the um, the exclusivity. Pugin's thought that. Um, Say Saint Peter's as it is now, the, the, was 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 terrible. Was a pagan monument. Uh, was uh, and um, I think that that's where he went uh, went to find his exclusivism. Really, uh, seeing only Goth, only Gothic as the as the form of a Christian church. But I I think he was very successful in in communicating precisely that sort of. Sanctification of the material, uh, this church in, in Schiedel, for instance, or the other is a wonderful church, wonderful churches. But um, uh, the also the the, the way he uh, he charged um, um, uh, he he charged these architectural principles morally. Also, he thought it was. Uh, morally objectionable to build a church like St. Peter's, really, because basically you, you're a pagan, you fall into paganism. Uh, and, and, uh, so, and, and by investing architectural principles with these, these moral, moral uh, values, he also in some ways, and that's uh, what um, I think what, what um, um, David Watkin argued, uh, anticipates um, uh, the modernist movement, your ornamentous crime. So uh, and and that's so there's that's that's a bit questionable, uh, but in what he actually did, it's remarkable, beautiful works. All right, thank you, Father.